This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. back to another edition of Business Impact 2024. Here we are, bright-eyed and slightly bushy-tailed at the end of January. We are a bit wind-blown and a bit bleary-eyed from all the wind and storm systems. And I don't know what the Atlantic, we ever did to it, but the Atlantic Ocean has been throwing some very, very nasty weather at us. But we are here and present and in our first podcast of the year. And people are a bit irritable in January, as you know. Some people because they haven't had any alcohol. Other people because they're just irritable personality types. And there's a lot of irks. At the moment in life, housing is one and the cost of living, even though it's slightly improved, it's still a a tough position on prices and just getting value. And I suppose the third bit you heard a lot over Christmas was just the whole transport area. Getting a taxi is one of those lesser but nevertheless important irks in modern society. Why can't you get one when you come out of the nightclub, pub, theatre, cinema, etc.? And there's various reasons, which all of which we can't get into, but they're, they're certainly multiple about why you can't get taxis and you can't get them when you want them. And of course, the cost of them is also an associated issue that gets ventilated on a regular basis. So we have a contributor today who could talk to us a little bit about one particular aspect of that business and also the wider gig economy, which I suppose are intersecting. You have transport and the gig economy coming together in um, ride-sharing services like Uber, which anyone who's taken a holiday in uh, the US, but also in parts of Europe, would be very familiar with. You can get an Uber cab in Ireland, but it's very much coming through the conventional taxi system. So what we're going to be teasing out with our guest, who has very interesting papers out there on the gig economy and the use of algorithms to um, decide where labour goes and at what time and how labour in these companies is managed, is our guest, who is Dr. Emma McDade, who is a sister professor here at the Business School. She is got a PhD. She's worked for many years also in Australia, and she's been doing a lot of work on Uber, the company, and how they use their resources and their labour force. You're very welcome along, Emma. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Emma. It's lovely to meet you. It's great to have such a subject that a lot of people are interested in. As I said, it covers everybody. Anyone who's ever gone out for a night out has had a view one way or the other on the taxi they got or didn't get, etc. So it's a great topic to get a discussion underway. But first of all, Welcome along for the conversation. It's great to have you. I know you've joined the UCD Business School in recent years. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this area as as a sort of a research topic. I did my PhD in Australia, and I suppose there's a, a little bit of fate and good luck involved in terms of the focus. I started studying in 2015, and I was working in Australia at the time in a tech company called Hotel Club, a travel platform, essentially. And I switched then to go back to academia to do research. And at the time in Sydney, Uber had just launched. And I guess I was kind of confronting the the research topic and I had to write a research proposal and I had to figure out what I wanted to study. And, And just Uber was incredibly topical. It was, you know, the hot topic around town. Everyone was downloading the app. Everyone was sending people referral codes and it was all really anyone could talk about. And as a management accountant, I was just genuinely interested in how the platform had managed to scale, um, had managed to enter the market so quickly and had managed to gather, you know, the the customer base that it had. And it it really just started from there. You know, that was the research topic then. And I started 
conducting interviews um, and publishing papers on it. Have you got an Uber yourself? <laughs> Obvious question to ask. Just as part of the research that I did, I, I think I took 300, just under 300 trips. Wow. In Australia. So um, I, I guess part of that was to become familiar with um, the experience of, of being in, you know, being at the customer in gig work, but also part of it was to ask drivers if they wanted to be part of the research and, and to be an interview participant. I have this image of you holding a microphone in from the back seat into the uh, the driver's mouth and saying, tell me more, please. You know, was that what it was like? Definitely meeting the drivers. You get you kind of get a sense as to who is genuinely interested in what you're trying to do. You could, you know, you kind of introduce the topic. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm studying over or whatever. And you, you kind of see who, who takes the bait. Um, the interviews would then be arranged. So the interviews never took place in the car. So, um, you know, we use the facilities at UNSW where I did my PhD or just, um, coffee shops, restaurants, um, public places uh, around the eastern suburbs in Sydney, also Melbourne. Um, and I travelled to Paris as well, um, following that same sort of um, pattern. I suppose the thing about the gig economy, we, we throw this term around a lot and it gets kind of maybe too loosely used. I suppose some people call them industries that are disruptors or disaggregators and yeah. All this kind of language gets used and they're still relatively new, all these companies in economic terms. They haven't been around all that long and they, they've been adopted very quickly. You know, it's been a very rapid ascent for all these companies. When you hear the word gig economy, is, is Uber for you and companies like that, are they what is used to illustrate the gig economy? Are they the kind of classic examples of this or are they slightly miscategorized, do you think? No. So definitely, you know, Uber, Deliveroo, um, Postmates, those types of platforms are part of the gig economy. I would classify those as app work, but the gig economy more broadly um, includes, you also have freelancers. Um, so you might have software engineers, for example, registered with Amazon's Mechanical Turk. So there's Mobile Works Cloud Factory that does a lot of outsourcing. Um, and so there's also crowd work that happens within the gig economy. And I suppose abstracting out of that, you know, you think about labour has been composed of traditional employment. So traditional employment where there's direct control between an employer and employee. And then you also have contract work. And we have, you know, understood contract work in terms of direct contracting where there's two parties. And then you can also have a subcontractor. So gig work is classified within contract work. And like I said, then within gig work, you have app work where you have Uber and deliveries, etc. But then also crowd work as well. Yeah, I was conscious of when we were going to hold this conversation with you that there's a lot of moving news around this area. There's court uh, judgments happening a lot in Ireland and in other jurisdictions that are means the ground under our feet is changing all the time in this area and, and what exactly an employee is and, and what rights and obligations their employer, if you can call them that, uh, has. I, I know that's sort of a very dynamic area. So uh, I think both of us should put that health warning on our conversation that even before we, we publish this piece, something else may have changed. But nevertheless, I want to zone in on, on, on the whole idea of labour and these algorithms. Now, a lot of our listeners might think, you know, you've got somebody in a car, they get up in the morning, you know, they, they, they get a call, they say, go from Stalorgan into the city centre if they're in Dublin, and off goes the Uber driver and all the rest of it. It's not quite that simple. And these algorithms are almost the way that big companies allocate the work and the time and so on. Could you just talk us through how they're used by the companies typically? Uh, uh, that'll give us an idea of 
the issues that are then thrown up? So, you know, we don't have the traditional Uber experience in Ireland. So you can download the, the Uber app in Ireland, but it will be just a licensed taxi driver that shows up. Um, and that's just because of the legislative restrictions that, that are in Ireland. But if you go to any other country, so, you know, like you said, at the start, the US and Europe, but certainly it's in, you know, Africa and Australia and South America and Canada. So it's, it's um, kind of all over the world at the minute. So what will happen is, you know, a driver gets vetted. There's a couple of points that Uber will make sure that they get from a driver, a driver's license. In some countries, they have to be cleared, um, like they do a criminal record check. And driver passes the checks, downloads the app, has his own car and is generally good to go. So once they turn on the app, if a customer requests a trip in the vicinity, um, the driver's app will ping um, that says ride request. And so that driver then has 30 seconds to accept or reject the trip. Now, there are various mechanisms within the app to ensure that a driver does accept the trip. Um, and that's one of the priorities, I think, of the gig economy. We call it the on-demand economy. And it's ensuring that customers, I suppose, get what they want when they demand it. So there's a mechanism there whereby if a driver does not accept that trip, then the algorithms work so that there's, I guess, a, a slower flow of work gets pushed to that driver in the future. So the driver will be less inclined to receive job requests in the future if they don't accept the trip that they receive in the moment. So if the driver accepts the trip, the trip happens. Once the trip finishes, the driver gets paid and the customer then rates the driver out of five stars. Um, Uber also have a mechanism whereby it's a performance rating. Drivers have to maintain an average of 4.6 out of five stars or they are then deactivated. Wow. Yeah. So customer hopefully gives that driver five star rating um, and then has the driver's reversing and accepting a new trip, uh, a scorecard gets pushed to the driver with, uh, I suppose, performance reflections. And it will either have green ticks, a red dot or an amber cross. And, and so on certain driving criteria, like I think one of them is harsh braking, um, the Uber app would communicate to the driver that they have been surveilled and that, you know, at that you know, traffic light on the Storlorgan Jill carriageway, you braked harshly or you braked suddenly. And that's a, a sort of a red X against your name. So again, the perception is within the driver workforce that these metrics also impact the flow of work that comes through the, the application to their profile. What do you think is going on here? Do you think this is putting the relationship between the employee and employer here, if that's what you can use, it's tilting the balance back towards the employer or is it tilting it towards the customer or how do you kind of frame what's going on here in the example yeah. you've given? So I think with these types of platforms, you know, the strategy really is get big quick. That translates to how can we ensure that we access as much of the customer market as quickly as possible. Everything is tailored to the customer. If a customer requests a refund for some reason through the Uber app for saying that, you know, they waited too long for the trip to come or, you know, they were charged too much, the refund is automatically delivered to the customer's account and the driver is automatically, their salary is deducted. There is no review of the substance of that customer's request. Customers also, in terms of their rating, 
out of five stars. There's very low customer accountability as well. So customers don't have to provide any criteria to back up why they're rating the driver a certain star rating out of five. So generally, I think um, these platforms are just trying to get big quick and secure as much of the market share as possible. Um, and that means prioritizing the, the customers ahead of the workers whenever we consider the, the sort of broader stakeholder group. Yeah, and I suppose the, the big issue at the moment is availability as well of taxi drivers. And I noticed that um, just doing some research for this conversation, they, a number of politicians, uh, mainly outside Dublin, I suppose, where there may be less taxi availability generally, are saying we need to bring Uber into some of the cities in, in regional locations. We need to loosen uh, some of the regulation in this area so that people who are socialising possibly in more remote or isolated areas where there's less uh, transport available that Uber could solve that particular problem of uh, rural isolation, people not being able to go and meet their friends, etc. What, what do you make of those sort of statements or, or would you kind of put a health warning on them in the sense that you, you they would be opening themselves up to potential exploitation of the drivers or is each area or location different? I mean, just, just to get your your general reaction to when, those comments that are were made over Christmas, so they're, they're kind of topical. There are considerations um, involved in granting Uber the, the sort of permission to operate in Ireland. Uber comes with a lot of baggage. So we see in various countries around the world over the past seven or eight years, there's been a lot of social disruption. Um, there's been a lot of strikes. There's been a lot of protests. Taxi drivers and Uber drivers do not get on. Um, taxi drivers perceive Uber drivers has taken their livelihood um, and impacting their businesses. And Uber itself doesn't really help itself because they tend to ignore the, the national regulations and legislation that exists in terms of transport. And they just bulldoze their way into countries. And then once they're there and they have some customers, then they try and lobby governments and, and sort of change regulation um, retrospectively. So, you know, there's a lot of social considerations involved. So I would be cautious, um, you know, with that respect. And also I would flag that there is an element where the market controls prices with Uber. So so people do think, well, there's a there's a cab shortage in Ireland and Uber could you know, be the solution that comes in there. But the Uber app works so that if demand is very high, prices will also be very high for customers in order to attract drivers into the car. They're going to pay drivers more and it's going to cost driver. It's going to cost customers more. So you always have that um, consideration as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not really straightforward. The legislation locally in Ireland is watertight. The National Transport Authority in Ireland regulates, I think it's, it's small vehicle transport, so limousines, taxis and hackneys. And they also regulate dispatch operators. In other countries, legislation tends not to uh, regulate dispatch operators. And so Uber can operate in other countries because of that gap. You know, when they first started up in San Francisco, for example, immediately they got a cease and desist letter. Um, but Uber found that gap in the regulation and that's how they, they do tend to work. So they work through ambiguities and emissions in regulatory frameworks around the world. So in Ireland, we, we just don't have the flexibility within the legislation. They cannot because of how we uh, do regulate dispatch operators. Um, so I would ask people to consider the, the social impact of Uber. Um, obviously, my research also talks about the fairness of some of the controls over the workforce. So 
gig economy itself, this type of labor is unregulated. It's very precarious for workers. You know, we talked about that 4.6 star rating. Workers can can be deactivated and switched off pretty quickly. And so there, there are issues in terms of transparency and fairness. And in many countries as well, Uber drivers don't earn the minimum wage. So look, you know, there's a lot of social and, and regulatory considerations. And is it is it possible that there's there is a kind of halfway house here whereby the government through their regulating uh, regulatory agency says yes Uber you can operate in Ireland and all the cities twenty six county wide subject to the following regulatory uh, impediments on your business like minimum wage um, have it to be absolutely there um, some of the issues that you're talking about so in other words uh, Uber is allowed to operate it's it's given a license it, it it's approved to operate in all locations but subject to two or three, or maybe it's more than two or three, but particularly very pillar things that we would like to see societally, particularly the minimum wage uh, that you mentioned. Is that a possible way to go? Or do you think that the business model of Uber is, is so a much of an outlier to what we're used to in this part of the world that it would be very hard to put any curbs around them that would actually make their business viable then? So in other words, they can only operate uh, by pushing a coach and four through some of these things. Or do you think, no, maybe with some adjustments, they can operate, but operate differently than they would traditionally in, say, the US market. I do see in other countries, governments have been able to apply levies um, and charges onto um, Uber trips has a sort of, a, I guess, a sweetener. So, so you know, to allow Uber to operate um, for every trip, Uber pays the government $1 in Australia, for example, that was added in Victoria a couple of years ago. If they ask them to consider the minimum wage, there would probably be a point of which Uber would turn around and where Uber would consider whether or not it would be still feasible for them to operate in Ireland. Uber aren't the kind of organisation that flex to requirements easily. So um, the Supreme Court in two about two years ago in London issued a final judgment that was taken um, on behalf of a number of Uber workers against uh, the Uber organization in the UK. And th- these workers were arguing that they were not independent contractors, that they were workers and that they were entitled to, you know, things like annual leave and sick leave and a whole host of other benefits as well that workers are entitled to that contractors are not. And after a very long and protracted legal battle, the court sided on the the case of the workers. Now, Uber's policy and approach there has been to simply back pay those workers who took that case for the charges. They, they have not gone back and compensated the rest of the workforce in the UK, which would be a very significant cost to their business um, on account of that judgment. So, yes, I would like to see the Irish government be open to platforms like this, you know, because I do think there are some benefits to the economy. But in that negotiation process, I would be worried that the platform itself probably would be disinclined to accept some of the terms. Yeah, I suppose the, the thing that might help us all here is, is, is just the fundamental laws of economics in the sense if they don't pay minimum wage, you know, and, and other companies are paying it and they're the outliers, they, they will find it hard to get staff in a full employment landscape. Uh, so will economics force them to change their business model, leave out the morality of it, which is very glaring from what you point out? 
But will, you know, is, is the idea of having this kind of very disembodied workforce that's available at the drop of a hat, that doesn't get minimum wage, that doesn't have proper um, labour protections, like, is that sustainable long term? You know, we, we can see all these court judgments happening. The net is kind of tightening on this model in some senses, uh, certainly in Europe, whatever, but elsewhere. So do you think that... Mm-hmm. Do you think that over time this business model will be chipped away at anyway, um, you know, regardless of what Uber wants to do or not do? That's an interesting question. You would think that the business model would struggle because, you you know, you would expect that, that workers wouldn't work for less than minimum wage. But what we actually see is that there's a huge turnover in the gig economy. So um, I think... Uh, I think I saw somewhere that it was more than 50% a month. So um, drivers were rapidly turning away um, from this type of work, correct? They exit the market and and my research shows them exiting the market as well and resisting as well a lot of the the conditions they're subject to. But what you also see is that there's a very steady flow of workers joining the app. Um, So the practices that the platform put into play don't hurt the platform itself. So they, they tend to have this, I suppose, evolved approach to managing people where people are just, you know, considered in purely functional terms. They're not really considered for their motivations or their, you know, the things that make them human. They're, you know, they're just inputs into the, the value chain. I was going to ask you the next question, which must have been a fascinating part of your research is who were the workers and who are they typically? Because you know, I hear this stuff, particularly from Deliveroo and I suppose Uber to some extent, and that they have obviously lobbyists and public affairs uh, staff in the companies. You know, there are a group, there are a cohort of workers out there who don't want a permanent job with all the bells and whistles. They want to be flexible. They want to move from one job to another. They don't necessarily have a lot of, um, you know, duties or, or overheads in their lives and they just want to eat, earn easy cash. And this model happens to suit them. It's not for everybody, but there is a group of workers to which it does suit. Um, did you get any sense of that, that, that such people do exist in these business models? I mean, obviously you were doing research and it's it's peer reviewed and all the rest. So, but did you come across people that gave voice to that viewpoint or did you really struggle to find somebody who kind of fitted that picture that the uh, the companies would suggest is out there. Well, absolutely. And, you know, people who who have the capacity and who had time on their hands, um, who valued the flexibility. There was just a, a kind of a vast array of, of types of people that drive for Uber. Um, probably, you know, a good proportion of immigrants. Then otherwise you would have maybe some people who were going back later in life to study, um, some, you know, students, people who were setting up their own business, people who had just been made redundant. So so people with that capacity and time in their hands to work, definitely that there's a profile out there to to meet Uber's requests. So so when the companies say, well, you know, we are a platform for those people and if, if the regulation is too strict and too all-pervasive, you know, that option won't be there for that particular group. What 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 would you say to that? Because that seems to be that their, their main speaking point they, they produce when, when they are interviewed about these issues. So the ride sharing market has developed a lot over the past few years. At the beginning, so 2014, 2015, Uber did start in the US, I think around 2012. But by the time it got around to the rest of the world, it was a couple of years. At the beginning, it really was just Uber. And then there were a number of other apps. Taxify is one of them. DD is another one. Um, Ola is another one. Um, and so you see 
similar platforms enter the market, but with slightly different um, MOs, I guess, um, slightly different strategies for how they engage with drivers. And especially in France, you know, I spoke to a lot of drivers who switched competitors quite quickly. So as soon as a competitor entered the market, they switched from Uber. Um, and the reasoning was with Uber, if there was a complaint from a customer or if there was an event that happened, if there was an accident that happened or, or just an issue that they had in ride sharing, they had no way of communicating with the platform. So everything was done through a bot. Whereas this other competitor that started um, in France had a helpline that uh, drivers could call and speak to an individual human who would um, sort of answer their questions and give them direction for next steps. And so that was massively valuable to the workers. And so you see that switching a lot. And many of the, the workers now who are in the ride sharing industry will have several apps in different countries. So they would they would have maybe sometimes they have various phones as well to to sort of host the apps. Yeah, certainly any taxi you get in Dublin, the, the, the whole dashboard is covered in various phones with various apps beeping and clicking away. So you're right, I would say that myself. Do you think, though, let's take a step back and, and elevate it up out of Uber for a second. But do you see this as part of a wider trend where the traditional relationship between employer and employee is, is kind of changing? And also there's a lot more self-employment coming in, gig economy type working, as you say, and that's replacing the traditional, you know, nine to five job where somebody might stay in a company for many years, might do one kind of a job for their, their life cycle. Do you think this kind of employment is replacing that and eating away, I suppose, at traditional employment and, and what it looks like? And is that something that uh, A or B, good or bad, but more importantly, do you think it's almost inevitable because market forces will just force these things uh, eventually if, if consumers vote with their feet and don't have that social conscience about the controls on the employee that you mentioned, that if it's convenient, that will overpower any of these other considerations. Are, are, in other words, are you optimistic or pessimistic, I suppose is a shorter way of asking this question, about this world and what will happen in the next five years? There are some things to to be aware of, I guess, you know, with, that, with this new contracting relationship that, that exists under gig work. There's a lot of short termism in the in the type of work and the relationship that the worker has with the platform. Um, so with regards to people and recruitment, um, the platform doesn't expect to deal with workers for a very extended time. And because of the nature of that, I think there is a, a sort of lack of trust between the platform and the worker. And I think, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not sure, you know, what the labour force is going to look like in five to 10 years time, whether contracting is going to take a bigger slice of that traditional uh, landscape. But I would assume that organisations understand that the, the, the trust issue there in the relationship between the organisation and the worker is really important. Um, so hopefully, you know, there will be consideration um, of the benefits of, of traditional employment. I guess my concerns are around how algorithms are being used to monitor workers and to condition behaviour. The point of, uh, you know, me looking at, at this type of work is so that we can be sensitive to some of the issues that might come up. Um, obviously, gig work is entirely algorithmically managed. So it's easy for me to get into um, the area and get the data on algorithmic controls. Um, 
And there are trends nowadays as well. Like, you know, we talk about remote working. We are talking about remote working a lot. There's various types of software that organizations can use to have more visibility into how workers behave. Um, And so, you know, in the gig economy, because the way that the organizations deal or the platforms deal with the workers is very, it's very functional. It's in purely economic terms. We kind of historically, we've always, you know, the HR discipline has always been very sensitive to workers' motivations and in trying to incentivize them with bonuses and sort of promotions and, you know, all of those traditional sort of um, carrots, I guess. We sort of see that sea change now and we see that shift. Um, so it's much more disciplinarian and punishing, I guess, with workers in some ways as well. So with this software is used to manage workers now remotely and, and with all these sort of tools and techniques that organizations are using to understand how workers work, I guess we just want to be aware of what we have done historically, how we've managed workers historically and what the trends are. So so making sure that we strike that balance and to remember that work when it's evaluated, it's always going to be contextual. The context is really important and we have to maintain that. So we can use software, we can use algorithms. There are headsets now that look at sort of your cognitive load and how much you focus at work. Um, we can use them, but we also always have to remember the context involved in people's work. And we have to remember how they add value, um, how they work within teams, all of those really important factors and sort of try and strike that balance between the algorithmic management of now and sort of, you know, all the lessons that we've learned in the past. And in terms of what might happen and then get that crystal ball out again a second time, it- there's two ways that this might change. One is by more regulation, more legislation. So in other words, uh, societies decide, you know, that the, the balance is in the wrong direction. We're, we're, we're taking away power agency responsibility from the workers and it's tilting back towards the companies, stroke shareholders, etc. And we can tackle that through legislation and regulation, as, as you've mentioned, and, and court judgments and so on. Uh, the second piece would be those economic issues, which is that companies, not necessarily through any good instinct, but a more economic instinct, which is that in order to keep employees to make them productive, happy and, you know, get access to labour, you know, you you need to incentivize, not just punish, as you say. So, you know, the conditions need to be better, uh, pay needs to be higher, all of those things, you know, your, your amount of talent you can get in will lessen as your conditions deteriorate, we would at least suggest. Which one of those two things do you think is more likely to help in this area? Is it regulation and legislation or is it those supply and demand issues that you get in any labour market or is it a mixture of the two? So in other words, what's what's going to help us make this, this relationship a better one in the future, do you think? Probably a mixture of the two. The area is very dynamic and it's changing all the time. And we as academics have a responsibility to be connected with practice and to make sure we're aware of everything that's going on. But... That is quite challenging when it comes to technology today. So that regulatory piece, you know, trying to update legislation to safeguard, you know, um, some of the traditions that we have or to enable us to use AI and and, um, those sorts of tools uh, more responsibly 
it takes a long time. So that's a very complex process. So I think it, it is sort of a mixture of the two there where we, yeah, there, there's just a social piece there, um, making sure that we can stay connected and, and feedback all of these concerns, you know, in whatever ways we can through the media, um, through, you know, platforms like this, for example, um, and sort of feeding that back into organisations. Well, listen, we, we've been measuring our conversation, so we're at uh, 34 minutes. We've completed one podcast, one hopefully interesting conversation between myself and Dr. Emma McDade, who's an assistant professor at the Business School. Fascinating reflections on the world of work and what it might look like in a few years' time and what it looks like today as well. There's a whole range of issues, Emma, that you've put your finger on. So uh, it's up to others to discuss them beyond just us two, but it's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Emma. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver. We hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music